Hello and welcome to Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth chat podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Zoe. And we are here to discuss the works of John Ronald Rayul Tolkien, who was writing stories set in Middle Earth from 1937, when he was 45, up until his death in 1973, when in all that time he still hadn't made an internally consistent narrative. So, any mistakes that we make with the facts uh, or the minutiae of Middle Earth are because, just like him, we are making it up. (laughs) And uh, we have a great treat today, as always. Zoe has done a bunch of work on linguistics in Lord of the Rings. So if you want to just dive right in, Zoe, I'm excited. I am so excited. So I finally got that book that I was waiting for, uh, The Languages of Middle-Earth by uh, Ruth Knoll. Yeah, it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. It ended up being a little bit about the languages and then mostly like, this is how you speak the language and this is a dictionary of translations. and here's some like family trees of these languages and it was like 75 pages long like a pamphlet kind of yeah maybe a hundred some pages long but it was short and it wasn't as in-depth as i thought it was definitely more about if you want to speak these languages here's the basics i love that there's just like a primer out there for how to speak elvish in the tolkien way oh there are and there's so many like online websites uh there's one website that is literally just about it has like courses and classes for learning Elvish. Damn. Yeah. Which Elvish, though? Sindarin, because okay. that's the most common. We'll, we'll get into that. Okay. Um, Teach me. I will. Okay. So, first, I want to point out that there's like two aspects of talking about the languages that Tolkien invented. And the first is what one might call their primary world history. And I got this concept from the Languages of Middle Earth book. Um, which is their literal development by Tolkien as a linguist, and their secondary world history, which is the imagined historical development of this language in Middle-earth. So you do see a, a shift and change of languages as histories change, people converge, there's different influences, just like you would see in the real world. Tolkien created that linguistical history for his own languages throughout the Silmarillion the Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, etc. Damn. Which is so cool. But anyway, so there's like two kind of ways of talking about it or sides of it, I should say. And again, part of this came from Tolkien's idea that's really put forth in the creation of the world of Arda, which is that the entire world was created by a song, aka spoken word. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is the, the singing of the words that bring the creation to life, much like in the Bible. Noel pointed out that and I quote, the languages of Middle-earth retained a vital power. The right user or the right words could unleash significant powers for good or evil. It is said of the Silmarils that they were cursed with an oath of hatred, and that even he that names them in desire moves a great power from slumber. Uh, the minds of Moria were hidden with a riddle that was a play on words. Saruman had the power to control with his voice, even changing the wind and storms over Karadharas when the fellowship was trying to cross. Uh, Galadriel apparently created the Malorn trees through song, since she sang of trees, of trees of gold, and trees of gold there grew. So there's this theme within Tolkien's writing that words have power to create, which I think is fascinating. So, Elvish. We'll start with the most known language of the Tolkien Middle-earth world. The Elvish languages Sindarin and Kenya are the most famous and the most mature languages of those that Tolkien invented for his mythology. 
They belong to a family of Elvish dialects that originate in common Eldarin, which is the language common to all Eldar, uh, which in turn originates in primitive Kendian, which was Kenyan. And uh, just to clarify, the Eldar are the elves who began the journey west after, after the three messengers told the elves that they should all travel to Valinor. And then some of the elves who remained in Valerian became the Sindar, who spoke Sindarin. And that was when uh, the two languages kind of broke off. Um, they originally spoke primitive Kenya. And then when some elves, including the elves of Mirkwood, decided to stay in Middle-earth and not continue the journey, they then spoke Sindarin or created Sindarin. The elves came together again in the first age, and they all spoke Sindarin at that point, since uh, the Noldor, who were a group of high elves, could learn Sindarin more quickly than the Sindar could learn Kenya, just because there was difference in technical and more uh, logical. Um, like it was a, like Kenya was a more complex language. And also there's some wisdom and knowledge in this assumption that maybe the high elves were a little more wise, but that's also kind of, you know, hearsay. By them, I'm sure. Right, precisely. Again, like Tolkien put all these different little foibles and quarrels around little things that people would do into his work and his mythology. So the Helvish history is pretty complex, but in regards to language, there are many examples of language being changed or ban banned because of the events of history. Uh, for example, in the First Age, a bunch of the Teleri, or sea elves, were slain by the Noldor. And Thingol, who was the Teleri king's brother, heard about the kin slaying, and he commanded that no Sindarin elf should speak or answer in Kenya, since that was the language of the Noldor. He vowed that any who used the Kenya tongue in his realm would be considered unrepentant kinslayers and betrayers of their people. The Sindar accepted this decree. Shit. Right? They were just Jesus. like, sure, we'll just speak this one language. Oh the Noldorian exiles adopted the Sindarin language for general use, and Kenya became known as the high speech, and it was only spoken by the lords of the Noldor or used as the language of their lore. And this is why Galadriel, who was high among the Nord Noldor, sang her lament for the West in Kenya as she watched the fellowship uh, depart from Lorien. Uh, so to make it clear, modern day Elvish is Sindarin and Kenya is kind of like Elf Latin and Tolkien actually called it the Latin of Elvish. Like a dead language, but not forgotten. Yeah, it's still used for history and like really fancy ceremonies. And uh, like the kings of Gondor will still have their names in Kenya. Oh, is this is like a naming language? Yeah, it's, it's like, because we'll go into the history of that in a little bit when I talk about the language of men um, and how that all intersects. But it, yeah, it became like a, a language of royalty, a, a language of high class. Because if you're going to learn the lore and the history of with Kenya, you're going to probably be more rich, more, more noble, have the time for that kind of thing. Yeah, to learn an unnecessary language. Right. Just like Latin in some cases. So in terms of like the influences of real languages that Tolkien used to create his languages, uh, Finnish morphology, specifically its system of inflection, uh, gave rise to Kenya. Both Finnish and Kenya are agglutinative languages. Ag huh, agglutinative, goodness. yes. Uh, which means that you can add multiple affixes to words so that a single word can be an entire sentence in English. Oh, like uh, German does that too, yeah? German does that too, yeah. Um, really random fun fact, in French there's a verb, agglutiner, which means to stick together. 
glue and gluten all have this kind of base word. Yeah, apparently. But uh, Kenya was also finished by Latin, Greek, Spanish, and Italian. Uh, like most European languages, it is a nominative accusative language, and the nouns are declined for 10 cases. Have fun with that. Mm. Uh, in terms of Sindarin, Sindarin phonology is based a lot off of Welsh, which was another of Tolkien's favorite languages. Randomly, Sindarin was also called, was originally called Gnomish, which I think is a completely hideous name for any kind of elven language. Like Gnomish should be something that orcs speak or something, right? Well, gnomes could speak it. Oh, I guess gnome, yeah, nor gnomes are a thing. Gnomes are a thing. But like, but gnomes aren't a thing in Middle Earth, but like gnomish is just such a gross word. It's just because it has a G at the beginning. No, it's just because it kind of makes me think I'm like gnashing my teeth. Gnomish. I suppose so. Uh, but Cinderin was also influenced by Celtic languages, uh, which is seen in their consonant mutations. I don't know what that means. I don't really either. Like, I, I went down a couple more rabbit holes as I do. And there were a bunch of sites that would break down like how all the cases are declined and like how all the mutations happen on different consonants and different vowels. Mm. And if it ends with this and starts with that. And I was like, I'm not even gonna try. That's a lot of languages. I'm thinking yeah. about it. And I mean, I took Irish for a little bit when I was living in Ireland. And mm -hmm. I think maybe they have consonant mutations where when you- That's a Celtic language. Yeah, it's when two consonants are together, they make a different sound. And oh. it's because it wasn't written, and then they had to adopt the English um, transliteration. And so they did it, um, but they they tried to represent that consonant mutation still. And that came through. And it's oh. uh, very difficult to read <laughs> if you haven't grown up learning Irish. I guess that would be similar to how if you put like Japanese or Arabic or Chinese into the Roman alphabet so that way people can sound it out. You're kind of splicing things together to try and make it sound right. Yeah, I think uh, I'm trying to think of a good example of the Irish thing. And I think it's probably in a word that uh, everyone says wrong. It's like another word for um, Halloween, Sawain. Sawain. But it's spelled S A M H A I N, and the uh, M H makes a V or a W sound, depending on which part of Ireland you're from. So it could be Savane or Sawain. Which is why nobody in English pronounces it correctly because no one knows that that's what the consonant pairing is supposed to make it into. Yeah, we don't have consonant mutations really in English. Or if yeah. we do, I don't know them because I only know English as a native language. I mean, we have really weird pronunciations with homonyms and, um, you know, silent letters. silent letters and things being pronounced based on the context, but I can't yeah. think of any consonant mutations. I don't know about consonant mutations. Neighbor, but we lose the GH in that one. That's not a consonant mutation though. Like it's more when certain consonants are together, it changes the sound is basically what consonant mutation I think means. Yeah. Fascinating. Something to look up. Mm -hmm. So John Garth wrote a biography of Tolkien called Tolkien and the Great War, and there him an interesting quote. He says, it seems apt that Kenya, the language of lore, had been devised when Tolkien was an undergraduate and a soldier in training, whereas Sindarin, the language of tragedy, adventure, and war, 
should emerge after Tolkien's experiences in the Somme. Mm. So there was kind of that time difference in terms of the creation of them. Mm -hmm. And one of them was kind of about the reflecting on the past and everything. And that's the language that he created before he kind of was hit by all of this, I'm sure, PTSD. <laughs> Oh, so much PTSD. And illness. One and... friend who lived after all that. God, yeah. But yes, then to get back um, to what you were saying earlier, both Kenya and Sindarin are written with the Tangwar script. So they have the same system of writing. It's also known as the Fianorian characters because Fianor created them. That's cool. That's like how uh, Chinese, both Cantonese and Mandarin are written using the same alphabet. And then Japanese is super similar because they were influenced by the Chinese. Uh, Japan has like three alphabets. <laughs> no, but like the like the original like old style. I forget what the names of them all are. Um, Katakana, hiragana, and kanji. I, but which one came? Which one was first? Because I, I hiragana, in, I think. In, oh no, it's it's kanji. Sorry. Kanji. Yeah, kanji are um, Chinese characters that the Japanese just straight up took to use in their own language. There we go. Sweet. So. That's what I found for the Elvish languages in terms of like a brief breakdown. Hannah, you said you found some wonderful little posts about pronouns. I did. Um, this was actually a look on um, kind of those earlier drafts that Tolkien wrote of his story. Ooh. This is a post that's a kind of a conversation with uh, dark haired Hamlet dot tumblr.com and cry over kilt milk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it says, uh, I just discovered that Tolkien used thou and the pronouns in his original drafts of Lord of the Rings to show how certain relationships changed from formal or hierarchical to more familiar, loving and respectful or equal. Apparently the more notable you to the shifts occurred in interactions between Gimli and Galadriel Eowyn and Faramir, and Frodo and Sam. And in other news, this information has 100% ruined my life because now I know we could have had informal pronouns in Lord of the Rings. And Cry Over Kilt Milk uh, throws in the, the delicious little quote, Denethor is burning his son, y'all! <laughs> <laughs> wow! Okay, so A, we don't have any way of showing formal and informal you in English, modern day English. Y'all is about as close as we get. That is so American, though. Yeah. It's, it's like, only recently become a thing that has, you can say without being looked at, like you're kind of a hillbilly. Well, it's because we're in the north of America, my dear. And if we were in well, the yes. south, it would not be a big deal. No, but it, like, it took a while to... Migrate. Migrate. Also, my Quebec friend, when I was having a conversation with her and was using y'all all the time, she was like, you have become so American. It's like, I lived in, I'm, I'm an American. Yeah, I lived in Canada for three years, but like, come on. <laughs> of course I'm an American. I yeah. just didn't use y'all because I was speaking French. The funny thing to me is that um, thee and thou were informal. You. Both of them? Yeah, I mean, thee and thou were just like different ways of saying you, but it was the less formal version of it. You was more formal. Oh, so then did Tolkien have you the and thou to kind of, or did he only use the and thou? Well, I imagine he started with the you in those relationships that was mentioned, where Gimli starts out talking with Galadriel using you and then moves to the and thou. Mm. I'm also really surprised about the Sam and Frodo aspect of that, 
because I would have like I knew that there's the gardener relationship so I could see how that would change but there was always part of me that just assumed that they were always kind of buddy buddy anyway does he call him Mr. Frodo throughout he calls him Mr. Frodo throughout and part of that's respect part of me always thought that might just be Sam he just like desperately has to be polite Mr. Legolas, Mr. Greenleaf, sir. Mr. Green, Mr. Elf Leafy Green. (laughs) Mr. Sir. Sir, Sir Aragorn. I can't imagine Aragorn being cool with that. No, me neither. But so part of me was just like, that's just how Sam speaks. Yeah. I don't know. Like that could show a pretty good imbalance of power if Frodo's calling him thee and thou and Sam's calling him you. Yeah. But that's fascinating because you don't get that without that difference in the book it's funny how so many languages have those in America and English kind of just dropped them I'd be curious to look into when that happened if it happened in England as a like when the plebes were revolting against monarchy if it was the Americans who knows well we made it to Quaker times the and thou yeah they used to make fun of Quakers in plays by having them say the and thou because it was a very friendly religion where everyone's called a friend in quaker kind of like the communists <laughs> comrade comrade i mean it translates to friend god i really want to hear pippin and mary call people comrade <laughs> they would be such communists oh my god denethor is burning his son comrade <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a shortcut to mushrooms comrade <laughs> God. Sam would hate them so much. <laughs> you couldn't. You couldn't look at him. Talking about comrade, but all I need is some taters. What makes me wonder if the original language that Tolkien is claiming to translate it from Westeron had those kind of informal and formal pronouns. Probably. Yeah. My guess, my guess is that it would have. Anyway, that was lovely. Next language uh, that I looked at was the language of men, um, the most prominent member of which was Westron, which was also known as the common speech. Um, Westron derived from the Numenorean speech Adunaic, A-D-U with a little hat on it, N-A-I-C, Adunaic, I think. Okay. And most Manish tongues show influences of Elvish and Dwarvish. So the original Westron predates men's journey to Beleriand. Men originally learned their speech from the Dark Elves who lived east of the Misty Mountains. All Elvish tongues have a common orange uh, origin, so when Findor, king of the Noldor, first discovered men in Beleriand, he could understand their speech. The First Age ended, the original line of men were granted the island of Numenor, and they used Westron as their language, so Westron became a lingua franca for trade throughout Middle-earth, as the Numenorians started to spread throughout Middle-earth and established colonies and realms. In the division of the Numenorians over allegiance to the Valar, language again became a political issue. Ar Adunak became the first king to take the throne with an Adunaic name. His name meant Lord of the West, which was originally a title reserved for the king of the Valar. Ar Adunak forbade the use of Elvish in his hearing. His grandson later forbade the use of Elven speech by the Numenorians throughout their realms. However, the faithful Numenorians retained their allegiance with the West and kept the memory of the language of the Elves. Really weird how many of these cultures are prohibiting language. 
like the elves it's a theme restricted kenya and then now they're restricting elvish speech i mean but that's also what people do like native americans weren't allowed to use their languages when they were in missions the idea of being like if you cut off a language then you cut off the culture and that culture dies yeah you have power you take control they don't have anything to rally around which is why taking back a language is so powerful it's just interesting that Tolkien included that so often in his works as well. I mean, he was a white guy from England, the dominating culture of so many others. But I'm sure he saw that like in his studies of Old English and Old Norse and Gothic and Irish and Celtic and Welsh and Finnish, like he probably saw the fact that English was becoming such a dominant culture and had wiped out other languages. Yeah, profoundly with Irish, I'm sure. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if that's a little C.S. Lewis influence as well. C.S. Lewis was Irish and probably pissed um, about it. Yeah. Um, when Numenor flooded, the remaining Numenorians established the realms of Arnor and Gondor under the leadership of Elendil. In these kingdoms, they spoke the common speech, enriched with Sindarin, and they kept Kenya alive in lore and ceremony. Aragorn was in the lineage of Elendil. Gotcha. Humans knowing Elvish is a final tradition. Yes, it's also like a royal tradition. What did the hobbits speak? The hobbits spoke Westron, but it was influenced by the towns around them, so it was a dialect of Westron. Okay. I did actually find another little uh, Tumblr post talking about Elvish and the uh, prevalence of it throughout the lands. Um, So this is a Tumblr conversation (laughs) between Penny Anna Joel at storywonker.tumblr.com, wizardguff.tumblr.com, tiny small beastie, whetstone fires, Audrey Critter, linguistic paradox, and Sina at sinatsukino.tumblr.com. A lot of people weighed in on this one. And so the the thing that's brought up is that uh, Legolas pretty quickly gets in the habit of venting about his traveling companions in Elvish. That's the scenario we have. So long as Gandalf and Aragorn aren't in earshot, they'll never know, right? I think I saw this one. Yep. Then about a week into their journey, Legolas in Elvish for approximately the 20th time. Oh, fucking Hobbit. So annoying. And Frodo also in Elvish. Deadpan. Yeah, we're the worst. (laughs) Earlier, Legolas. Oh, fucking Hobbits. Mary. Frodo, what did he say? Frodo. I'm not sure. He speaks a weird dialect, but I think he's insulting us. I should tell him I can understand Elvish. Mary. I mean, you could do that, but consider you can only tell him once. Frodo. Mary, you're absolutely right. I'll wait. And then there's a tag, Legolas's hick accent versus Frodo's I learned it out of a book accent. And then Legolas, um, well, your accent is horrible. Aragorn, hollering from a distance. His accent is better than yours, Legolas, you sylvan hick. <laughs> and we have Frodo saying, hello, my name is Frodo. I am a hobbit. How are you? Legolas, y'all <laughs> Frodo crying, please, I can't understand what you're saying. And then someone points out, okay, Frodo didn't just learn it out of a book. He learned like Chaucerian Elvish. So actually, Frodo, good morrow to thee, friend. I hope we twain shall be most excellent companions. Legolas, what's that, mate? Are you having a giggle? Good hobbits, I swear. Aragorn, laughing too hard to walk. And then, um, this is where tiny small beastie weighs in and says, I mean, honestly, it's amazing the elves had as many languages and dialects as they did, considering Gladriel, for example, is over 7,000 years old. 
English would probably have changed less since Chaucer's time if a lot of our cultural leaders from the 13th century were still alive and running things. They've all had like seven generations since the sun happened, Max. Frodo's books are old to him, but outside any very old poetry copied down exactly, the dialect represented in them isn't likely to be older than the Second Age, whereas Aragorn's foster father Elrond started out as a very young adult and grew into himself and like his father was born. So like three to 6,000 years old, maybe. So Frodo might sound hilariously formal for conversational use, so considering how most elves use Westron, he'd probably be safe there, and kind of old-fashioned, but he's not in any danger of being incomprehensible because elves live on such a ridiculous time scale. And then they have uh, some analysis of the Mirkwood elves. Uh, so Legolas's grandfather was from a linguistically stubborn Doriath, and their family is actually from a somewhat different, higher-status ethnic background than their subjects. So depending on how much of a role Thranduil took in his upbringing, Legolas might have some weird, stilted, old-fashioned speaking tics in his Sindarin that reflect a more purely Doriathran dialect rather than the Doriathran-influenced Western Sindarin that became the most widely spoken Sindarin long before he was born. Or he might have had a school voice from having been taught how to speak proper and then lapse into really obscure colloquial Avari dialect when he's being casual. <laughs> I guess it's just kind of a mess. <laughs> it reminds me, honestly, a lot of me learning... Quebecois by living in Quebec and never learning French in school and then living with a Swiss person, a Belgian, a Parisian, and a Quebec woman. And that was just how I learned French. I mean, you learned it purely conversationally. Yeah. So like, I probably sound like an absolute hick, (laughs) not even meaning to. And then people sometimes don't understand me because the Quebecois are notoriously hard to understand. So it's kind of like that. Um, They have an example of this weird dialect that Legolas might have spoken, where he says, Alas, verily would I have dispatched thine enemy post haste, but y'all have pitched a feckin' fit. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. And then they have Frodo scribbling, hang on, which language are you even speaking right now? Pippin, confused. Is he not speaking Elvish? Frodo sarcastically, I don't know. Are you speaking Hobbit? Boromir, who has been low-key pissed off at all the Hobbit's weird dialect this whole time. That's what it sounds like to me. Mary, who actually knows some shit about Hobbit background. We are actually speaking multiple variants of the Shire dialect of Westron, you ignorant fuck. Sam, a mere working-class country boy. Honestly, y'all could be talking Dwarvish half the time for all I know. And they have a final scene, which I think uh, relates back to the first post I read. Pippin, entering Gondor and speaking to the castle steward. Hey, yo, my man, Boromir from beyond the grave. Jesus. <laughs> oh, and that's what I love about Tolkien, right? Is that he made it in his books that this linguistical change and transfiguration over time is entirely plausible and 100% accurate. I mean, it's all about repression of language and enforcement of dialects that some people think are better than others or more proper. And linguistics is complicated. Some of the people split off and then made their own thing. And then the others continued and then made their old thing. And then these people came in and it morphed and changed and spread and cultures. And yeah, it's so cool. The key, key detail I like in these is that it does point out that elves live so fucking long. Mm-hmm. It's kind of difficult for language to change when someone's been speaking a certain way for a very long time. 
And I mean, we're running into that as human beings where we're adding different words or concepts into languages and people are really resistant. Like the they pronoun as a neutral pronoun was such a big deal until a bunch of like style guides and the dictionary added it or like made it the word of the year or something like that. Yeah, last year it was the word of the year for the Webster Dictionary. Yeah, and we've had words added like selfie and people were pissed about that, but it's a word that describes a very specific piece of cultural... I don't know, art creation at this point. (laughs) Or it's like how a lot of the technological advances don't really translate into other languages. They've just been, like they take the the English word and kind of add an accent to it because they don't necessarily create their own word for it. Yeah. But we can move on from Elvish and the language of men. (laughs) And so now we'll get into the, the, the last one I did a lot of research on that... I think you'll be especially excited about Hannah. Dwarves. Amen. Dwarvish. Also known as Kuzdul, which is the language of dwarves. Dang. Such a good language name. So the interesting thing with Dwarvish is that it's the only language that did not come about naturally from the race, but rather was given to them by Euli when he created them. Uh, the Silmarillion says that Euli taught them the language he devised for them. Oh, man, this guy built everything for them. He wanted to teach them everything. That, yeah, and part of Uli's thing was that he liked to create. That was his gift. And I love how meta this is, is that Kudzul is a constructed language, both in fiction and in reality. <laughs> Thank you, Tolkien. You went there. I love it. Tolkien is Uli. Yeah, basically. Um, the Kudzul language is the sole language of the Aulian family of languages, all other other Elvish languages are of the Oromian family. Kudzul has a 50-letter runic alphabet called Sirth, or Kirth, depending on how you want to pronounce a C-I-R-T-H. I do Sirth, but that's just me. Um, they're exactly similar to Nordic runes, uh, but some runes have been added and some have been turned around. He just flipped them? Yeah, he just flipped some of them. <laughs> uh, Dwarvish predates... Uh, and is a primitive form of the common speech, Adonaic. Men had contact with the dwarves before they went into Beleriand, and so they devised the Taliska tongue, which then led to Adonaic. So men speak dwarvish, a dialect of dwarvish. So men had their language, and then they had contact with the dwarves, and that created this, the Taliska. And then Taliska kind of was influenced by Elvish, uh, which led to Adonaic, which then became Westron, the okay. common speech. Gotcha. Yeah. Kuzdul was called a tongue of lore rather than cradle speech. The dwarves would study it as they matured to make sure that they passed it down generation after generation, exactly how it was given to them by Ayuli. Thus, all dwarves could speak to each other because there were no changes or alterations, regardless of geography and time. Oh, there he kind of accommodates for the long history of dwarves. Mm-hmm. Kuzdul sounds much like Hebrew and has a similar phonology and morphology. There was an interesting quote. I'm not, let me throw this at you and see what you think of it. Tolkien wrote in letter 176 that both Jews and dwarves were once natives and aliens in their habitations, speaking the languages of their country, but with an accent due to their private tongue. I kind of want to do an episode about Tolkien's weird race stuff. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. It comes up with 
uh, Terry Pratchett as well, because Terry Pratchett was basing his dwarves off of Tolkien's. And they there's a lot of Jewish stereotypes with this. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, something to talk about. And I also found some articles about um, orcs that have come up recently and mm -hmm. uh, they're kind of D and D heavy. I play D and D. So um, I'm invested in playing orcs as a playable race, but there's some uh, issues with that, that people have talked about and the way that Tolkien talked about orcs as well. And some like stereotypy stuff there. So that's an episode to talk about in the future. Yeah. I, I read that quote and I was like, okay, I can see how Kuzdul and how it sounds like Hebrew and the idea being that it was separate enough in its morphology and phonology from all other languages as to make it sound like a language that hadn't had any similarity, similar lineage. It, was, it had just been created. But that is a little problematic with how he appears to think about Jews and dwarves and Hebrew. Yeah. I mean, basing it on Hebrew is interesting because it's a language that's been passed down and maintained the way that Hebrew has for thousands of years mm -hmm. um, and is still spoken today kind of normally in some places. It's just a, a regular everyday language in some places and in places like America, it's, a, it's more of a um, religious language that's used in synagogue and as part of your like um, religious ceremonies. But um, some of this stuff's kind of maybe messed up a little bit there. <laughs> Neither of us are Jewish, so. No. And he also was, I mean, he was living in the two world wars and there was a very different attitude, very different experience. So I wonder yeah. how that played into his views. Yeah. I mean, he was Catholic. And as and... we know, there's a lot of like rough divides in Catholicism of being very patriotic to your, your version of the religion. Yeah. Fun fact, in the 2000s, a linguist named David Salo created an extended Dwarvish vocabulary, often called Neokudzul. And in 2012, an online forum was created uh, where basically you could learn Neokudzul and speak it that's so cool and they like created a big course and classes and stuff like that and it's a big online community oh dang that's awesome but i love that they're like it's it's not just kudzul it's neokudzul it's relevant to now i wonder what they had to say like can you say computer in like a dwarfish i did not find the site so i do not that's know fine. that's fine and then your favorite part hannah dwarfish sign language yeah so I did find more information about this, and it does exist. Yes. It's called Igleshmek, and it was as secretive as Kudzul. So with Kudzul, they would not teach it to anybody. In the very beginning of time, you know, they taught it to men that they trusted, but after that, they didn't teach it to elves. They didn't teach it to people. It was very secretive. It was protected. Um, and so the sign language was just as secretive. It was learned simultaneously as Kudzul, as the spoken word. Oh, that's cool. It's like how you teach babies sign language. Yeah, so it was just in conjunction. Uh, but unlike Kudzul spoken, the sign language varied from community to community. Tolkien described their structure and use among dwarves as such. Quote, the component sign elements of any such code 
were often so slight and so swift that they could hardly be detected, still less interpreted by uninitiated onlookers. As the Eldar eventually discovered in their dealings with the Nelgrim, uh, some of the earlier dwarves, they could speak with their voices, but at the same time by gesture convey to their own folk modifications of what was being said. Or they could stand silent, considering some proposition, and yet confer among themselves meanwhile. He gave a few examples of the Iglishmic sign language in his unpublished notes. The command to listen involved a slight raising of both forefingers simultaneously. The acknowledgement, I am listening, involved the slight raising of the right hand forefinger, followed by a similar raising of the left hand forefinger. Hmm. It's weird that they have a secret language. I wonder if this ties into their culture being very trade-based and wanting to like confer, but not have to, I don't know, show emotion about something that might mean the price goes up or down or something like that. I mean, there is that stereotype around dwarves being a little manipulative, right? Especially in terms of trade, like, mm -hmm. like what it says about you can speak with their voice, but by gesture convey some modification of what's being said, which is kind of like lying, almost being a little underhanded or like savvy with your trading. It's a little exclusive too, because like the people in your party who are dwarves that you've grown up with know what you're saying, but even other dwarves wouldn't know what it is. It's kind of like uh, the signs in baseball where you're yeah. like throwing a curveball or whatever. Yeah. It's also in like the King Killer Chronicles, uh, Patrick Rothfuss. Did you ever read the second book in that one? I did. It's been, it's been a long time. Yeah. It, there was people there who could only convey emotion with hand signs. Like they were supposed to be super deadpan and only show emotion with their hands, basically. Gotcha. And this is kind of, I don't know, maybe he drew from this. I was thinking more it was like a sign language like we have where it's able to communicate with people who are hard of hearing or in situations where you can't hear. Yeah, I did too. That was what I assumed based off the concept of sign language. But no, it's just it's just the secretive. Let me let us have a conversation amongst ourselves at the same time as speaking to other people. Hmm. This is also problematic. Precisely. <laughs> Damn it, Tolkien. I know, right? So interesting, though. Shit. <laughs> it's almost like an inside joke. It's like yeah. if you're hanging out with a bunch of people and then two of the people in that group are your really close friends and you're just like making jokes all the time that nobody else is privy to and then everyone else feels left out or like a third wheel and you're like, why am I here if y'all are just having all the fun? There, <laughs> I used y'all. Um, <laughs> and then we can't participate. Yeah. It's, it's really exclusive. Yeah. Or exclusatory. I don't think exclusatory is a word, but I'm going to go with it. I liked it. It's a good word. <laughs> you know what I meant. Made up. Well, thank you for all this research on the languages of Tolkien. So I'm glad we have some more insight, especially for the Dorvish ones, even though it got weird uh, and probably anti-Semitic there. Yeah, we apologize on Tolkien's yeah. behalf. I guess. I can't, I'm not really ready to take responsibility for Tolkien's writings. No, I won't. Well, you, even so, we appreciate you listening to Finding the Glitter in the Gold. If you want to email us and give us any feedback, you can get to us at glitterinthegold at gmail.com. We are available on all major podcasting apps. And if you could like us, rate us, write us a review, subscribe, we would really appreciate it. Share us with your friends if you think they'd be interested. And yeah, thanks again for listening. See you on the Shire side.